Hi, friends. Welcome to this latest episode of Love Service Wisdom. I'm fresh back from the SAN conference, Science and Non-Duality. That was this past weekend in San Jose, California at the Hayes Mansion. And I was there with my partner, East Forrest, who was performing a ceremony concert on Friday nights. We were invited to come down And it was a really wonderful opportunity for myself to drop into some very inspiring and enlightening and stimulating conversations with teachers I wouldn't have had the opportunity to otherwise meet. On Friday, I went to a panel discussion with the teacher, the spiritual teacher of the Diamond Approach. His name is Hamid Ali. And uh, he was with a with Swami Sarva Priyananda, who's the spiritual leader of the Vedanta Society in New York, which is in the lineage of Swami Vivekananda. And uh, Vedanta is the Advaita branch of Hindu philosophy that seeks liberation through knowledge. So it's very philosophical. And uh, Swami Sarvapriyananda and Hamid Ali, they were supposed to be in a panel together, the two of them, about the expression of spirituality in relationships. But it more turned out to be a conversation between these two very intelligent, deeply knowledgeable teachers about um, non-duality and the intersection of non-duality with Buddhism and the teachings of non-duality. And it was just incredibly rich in so many ways and really wonderful to hear them talk about, um, especially Sarva Priyananda. He spoke for a little bit before the panel on like a breakdown with about what Advaita Vedanta is, meaning the path of non-duality, which is essentially this philosophical idea that um, of oneness, of no separation, of we're all the same, of the absolutes, of the of Brahman, right? And then comparing that to the idea in Zen of there's nothingness; it's like a zero. And so these two dual thoughts, or what might be opposing thoughts of nothingness versus everythingness and how they're actually speaking of to the same concepts with slightly different flavors and experiences of them, of nothingness versus no thingness, the absolute. And uh, really in contrast to duality, which is like Two. So there's the zero in Buddhism, there's the one in this path of Hinduism, and then often in our Western mindset, there's a sense of separation of two. And so moving away from the two duality into the aspect of non-duality, and then what that means is a lived practice. So the two of them had a really rich conversation around um, that, and it was uh, just so enlightening for me to be able to listen to them, share their different truths on how we spiritualize ourselves. We don't just realize what these truths are out there or in there, I should say, but how do we bring it into like manifest reality? What does that look like in the world? And what is the process of that, um, of being an an aspect of the, the divine that's whole and then out there in the world as well? And then the second talk was sort of the opposite of it. It was another panel discussion that I ended up in on social justice. Are we one? 
social justice are we one? And it was with a meditation teacher and a founder of the Presence Collective, this woman, Caverly Morgan, and another woman, Conda Mason, who's an insight meditation teacher at Spirit Rock and a social and an earth activist. And Sarah King, who's a yogi and a neuroscientist that teaches about the relationship between mindfulness and community healing and social justice. And then Orlan Bloom, who's a pioneer in combining traditional knowledge with his work mentoring at-risk youth and his um, through his nonprofit, the or I don't know if it's a nonprofit, but his his uh, organization, the Shade Tree Multicultural Foundation, and he just has this deep wisdom of African and Western esoteric traditions. So three of these speakers were African American that were on the stage. And it was wonderful for me who struggled a little bit with the integration of social justice with spiritual teachings, because I feel like I'm very at home in my, like my feeling of home is actually rooted in my feeling of oneness, my real, my feeling of connection to the divine or something other. And I'm not so much aware of the world around me and the social injustices around me. And a lot of that has to do with my cultural conditioning and the privileges that I'm surrounded by and my own blind spots and also just my emphasis and waking up internally as opposed to putting my focus on waking up to the external realities of the relative truth around me and the suffering around me. And that could be a whole nother podcast in and of itself. But um, yeah, it was it was just, it was a, a vastly rich conversation with this diverse group of people, even in the crowd, and people had the opportunity to talk about why they were there. And there was a whole, you know, spectrum of what brought people to that panel um, that, that are grappling with these issues of social justice and non-duality. There was a woman that was also a presenter at the conference. Her name was Mona. I forget her last name, but she was a Muslim speaker and artist, and she called it cheap oneness, this idea that we're one, but it doesn't really mean anything or it doesn't really matter in a way because of all the injustices or go that are that are that are felt by so many on the planet that it's a spiritual bypass in a way to focus on that, which I can understand the way that they described it in the conversation is there's the universal truth, like I spoke about with the Vedanta teachings of oneness and interconnectedness in the absolute, that is true. That's the universal truth. And then there's the relative truth that there's a lot of suffering and the relative truth of separation. That's a lived experience in reality on the planet. So how do we, what's the bridge between the two? What's the through line that we're not answering things like questions of the relative truth and separation with universal truths like don't worry about it because we're all one or don't worry about it because uh, you know at the inherently everything's perfect just as it is right like that kind of like whitewashing generalization of real world lived experience 
and there was even a woman in the audience who was kind of like, it was like one of those moments where you're like, uh oh, this is actually happening, where she raised her hand and she was saying how she was a woman from the Ukraine but lived in the United States and she didn't like the use of the word white or black and that everyone is just shades of brown and that we should call ourselves brown collectively instead of black or white. And she would no longer tolerate the use of the word white or black. And she's saying that to these African-Americans who were on stage and um, who held their calm, cool, collected mentality through it. And were like, we, or the, the woman that spoke was actually Caverly. She's like, I disagree with you. I'm still going to use these words because they apply. And my reality is as... <laughs> is different than yours and that's okay if you disagree with me. So there's a little bit of this tension that was created, which just goes to show that we're in uncomfortable territory. We're in uncharted waters as we're merging through this growth point of the old paradigm no longer working and us waking up slowly to the reality of what that old paradigm represented and felt like and was for many of us, particularly those, well, all across the globe, let's just say, and that it's difficult to navigate and and that we're in the process of navigating through it and all kinds of stuff is coming up within it. At the end of the talk, Orland, she had this comment about how neuroscience has shown that five generations back for each of us is encoded in our body in our DNA, in our cells, and that we get triggered by histories that we didn't even live consciously, but that are still within us. And that it's our one of our duties or our dharmas to not die with these histories within us untransformed. And so part of my takeaway from that is waking up. I've done a really good job waking up in the internal esoteric realms, but less of a good job, a conscious job, waking up to the own actual form reality of my history and what is that and exploring that more and looking for pathways to heal that and to heal those rifts and those societal, um, the institutional, uh, mm, the institutional, control mechanisms that are put into place that we that we um, can shadow over or not witness or see. So kind of have a new call to action, which is inspiring to me. And it's interesting having just gone there, talking about my next guest on this podcast is with Drew Trapani, Jude Trapani, who is the, I don't like to define people by their spouses or partners, but he is the husband of the partner of Asia Andromeda, who was a guest on my podcast, maybe like five or six. And uh, she is a multidimensional channel, right? So she's in living in and embodying this new paradigm in the multidimensional realm. And so my conversation with Jude was first about his work in 3D reality. He's a government fish biologist and um, 
the ins and outs of the ecological work that he does and the systems work that he does. And then the latter half of the conversation, we get into 5D business and what that means and how that can play out in your everyday life. And so it's sort of a merging of these two worlds, the inner and the outer, kind of like those two conversations were one deep on the inner and one deep on the outer experience and how both are valid and they can work together. So this conversation with Jude gets into that and he's just a wonderful man. They used to live here in Boise, but they're up in Montana now. But Jude's also a Tai Chi teacher, and you can have Tai Chi sessions with Jude online. He does some mentoring. And like I said, he's still got his foot in the government working from the inside out to transform um, uh, the parts of the ecological crisis that we're undergoing now. So wonderful, wonderful man. I loved his conversation, the conversation with him so much. And I'll put some links to him and his information and maybe some of these other teachers I just mentioned also in the show notes. So check that out. And then while you're down there, you can leave a five-star review. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, you can follow on Spotify and you can leave comments as well, which really helps um, get other listeners who are out there uh, browsing around different podcasts to get excited about listening. So that support from you is really appreciated by me. And with that, here is Jude Trapani. Hi, everyone. I am with Jude Trapani. Did I say that right? I was just practicing. <laughs> Trapani? Trapani. Yeah. Jude Trapani, who is a friend of mine here from Boise, but he recently moved to Montana with his family. He is a recently retired government fishery, fish biologist, and a Tai Chi teacher. And also, I don't like to always identify people with their partners, but he's the husband of Asia Andromeda, who I've interviewed on the podcast earlier. And uh, so welcome, Jude. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. So like I said, you're recently retired and recently moved to Montana. That's right. Um, actually, I, I, I didn't really retire. I, I decided to leave the government um, from my uh, work as a habitat specialist and river restoration uh, specialist to um, go out on my own okay. and do some consulting work. And um, I, I have my own business, Jude Trapani LLC. So I, I do some contract work uh, specializing in natural resource management, mm -hmm. but especially um, to try to, uh, to use my expertise as a salmon habitat specialist to continue to do some great work to fix rivers and make more fish and more habitat. That that's one of my huge passions. Can it, you tell and, us how, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I'm no, curious just how no. you've been, you worked, you've been working Please. in this field for 30 years. So are there any highlights of restoration? that come to mind. Are we do are you doing a good job? <laughs> Great question. 
I I feel like I feel like we I I like to use the word we instead of I because everything that's happened to um, improve the land, especially in the Pacific Northwest and the Intermountain West, has been with a lot of people, lots of teams. And so um, the big we have done a tremendous amount to improve rivers that have been altered uh, historically from grazing and mining and logging and, and dam building and things like that. And people at the time, um, you know, late 1800s through the, you know, 1980s, 1990s, a little bit, really were trying to um, make the most out of the land and the water, diverting water for agriculture, you know, basically taking flows and streams, sometimes dewatering rivers completely. And I think with um, lots of government money, and support. Um, there's been many rivers in the West that that have seen great improvement. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea is to try to do it without putting people out of business, basically. Mm -hmm. And so the art of it is can we can we help ranchers still have a viable family business? and still improve and maintain really healthy streams and rivers. And, and the logging business, I think they would fly the flag that they've been extremely affected. But um, when one looks at that closer, it seems like economics have really played a big part of why the timber industry changed so much from the you know, 1960s, 70s, 80s, and to what it is today. But the benefit to fish habitat with changing logging practices has improved rivers tremendously. And, but same thing with mining and, and dam building and, and irrigation, but we still have a long way to go. And I think that's one thing that really uh, struck me when I look back is um, as as a pseudo scientist and a kind of an artist of bringing people together and being a collaborator and getting people to make different decisions about how they use natural resources mm -hmm. um, there there has been a, a change of consciousness, and I think that that is is what I felt compelled to continue to work on. In other words, there's there's one thing about working with a large river system and being able to find one landowner that's very conservation-minded and doing a lot of work to make good fish habitat. But what if the rest of the watershed still behaves in a way that really is out of balance and limits the, the full value of the river system? You know, uh, maybe a good example is an organic farmer on the Mississippi drainage, but yet, you know, 99.9% .9 of the acreage still is in 
really intensive agriculture with heavy pesticides and herbicides and things. And so, you know, where's the, where's the regional change? And I think it, I spent my career fixing smaller pieces and then monitoring them extensively to show that these things are possible. And my goal was always to really change things on a landscape scale. Mm-hmm. And I think we've done that in, in places in Idaho. I spent most of my time on the Lemhi River near Salmon, Idaho. And I think we've changed that place in an enormous way. The river functions so much better. And yet it still has a long way to go to have a healthy, sustainable Chinook salmon population, for example. And so this led me to... Um, my work combining what I know about Tai Chi and Taoism and internal energy and applying it to the land. And so how do we change the consciousness of people that will make better decisions on a really big scale? And then the, all the natural resources, the, the water to raft on, the clean water to drink, the healthy fish and wildlife populations and beautiful places to visit and things like that. And having people able to live on the land and um, earn a living by doing those things, agriculture and um, logging and and, um, smart and sustainable mining practices and, and, and agricultural withdrawal of water for crop use. And I think all those things are very compatible, mm-hmm. yet we, we have this, um, we've been operating in the past from um, kind of an extractive resource mentality. And as we change more to a sustainable consciousness, I think that we're That was a lot. Oh. It was a lot, but it's, I mean, it's good to get the sense of you are someone who sounds like they're consciously trying to change a very big system that's been in place for a century or more from the inside. That's right. That's right. And so where I'd like to take my work is where I'm taking my work is to help be the bridge between these concepts and the people who have creative technology and vision to apply it, to bring it to the, you know, we're starting in the inner mountain West. And, you know, I think that there's other efforts in other areas. The Florida Everglades has gone through major changes and people thinking about how to use that area differently. And so there, there are uh, some examples of, of how to do this, but I think we're, we're, we still need a lot more collaborative efforts where people come together and they really talk through issues and they really try to solve problems that aren't using the old, consciousness they're using this this you know these new creative ideas 
And is that what you're bringing to the table? Give me an example of that. Like how are you bringing, let's say, Tai Chi concepts or Taoist concepts to the farmer or the rancher? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So by what I found is by practicing, um, when I, maybe I'll start with this. When, when I first got introduced to Tai Chi and Qigong, it was in college in a class. And the teacher did some really amazing things. Um, uh, the specific example is he held up his arms, um, shoulder, he put his hands out to the side at shoulder height and challenged us to hold our hands like his out longer than he did. And so we were, you know, we looked like a bunch of birds standing there with our arms out. And after about a minute, almost everybody put their arms down because they were tired. And he held his arms up for about three more minutes. And I, I, it was kind of like a, you know, it was like a Satori experience where I thought, wow, some people know how to do things that go beyond the physical body. Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't his muscles. He was kind of a small guy. So he definitely had, um, he, you know, he didn't have a physical strength to hold his arms up that long. So he was using something else, you know. And, and that's... Um, what a lot of Tai Chi principles are built on is this, this, this integration of what I call the physical and the metaphysical. And this is what uh, Taoism is built on, is to mimic nature and have this flow of non-effort, which equates to tangible results. And so as I practiced Tai Chi, I started to... Um, learn the mechanics of Tai Chi so I could do the dance. And I, you know, I, I looked like I could do the form, but it wasn't until I met my teacher in 2000, um, Master Henry Wong lives in Canada, where I saw a person who could really put some of these internal energy concepts to, to physical fruition. And I saw him move people around the room without really move, without putting much effort behind it. And it, so it, it's kind of cemented this idea that there's more to what we bring to the world than just our five senses. And so I've been exploring that, you know, for 20 years now almost, and what I find is that if I practice these things physically, I could do it mentally, emotionally, and spiritually too. Mm-hmm. And so um, that sounds a little esoteric. And, and so you're so, saying um, when I practice as, Tai Chi in my body, when I do the movements and when I do the breath work, then I'm mentally and emotionally and spiritually able to enter into a place where I'm flowing without effort to get tangible results. Yes. And and maybe an example that people will be familiar with is a yoga class, a Hatha yoga class. And even though it's not, uh, it's often not Kundalini yoga, 
it's more physical yoga. People often will do that practice in a mindful way with the breath and get guided to be what I call in the zone. Mm-hmm. And, and after the hour class, they they just know that they feel better, right? Yeah, so exactly. they, they feel calm, they feel so that's what keeps people coming back. You know, it's not that they're getting big muscles. It's that, wow, you know, I just feel good. I was talking to a client the other day and she was reading the book by, I forget his name, but it's the the news broadcaster who had the panic attack on air and then through that experience found meditation. And he wrote a book and his book is called something like 10% Happier. And he said that he called it that, she was telling me. He called it that because people would ask him like, oh, you meditate. What does that mean? What does that do? And kind of giving a hard time. And he ended up just boiling it down to, yeah, I meditate, which just makes means it makes everything else in my life 10% better. Interesting. Yes. Which I think it could be even higher yeah, than yes, 10%. And so, uh, totally. I, I think it's way higher. <clears throat> and maybe at first it it makes everything 10% better. But, you know, the Taoist concept of eventually letting go of lots of effort, but accomplishing more is really difficult for the, what I call the 3D mind, the, the mentally dominated mind, you know, that's, that says, well, what the hell does that, that mean, you know? And um, I think, Part of it is that when you relax, and so we're getting into the Tai Chi and Qigong principles of relaxation and calming the breath and getting centered. And there's, there's lots of things that um, we can put words to, but until you feel it and experience it, it, it's hard to get your mind wrapped around because it's really not a mental thing. It's more of a feeling thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's part of that divine feminine process and the balance between the masculine and feminine. And so um, without going into details of Tai Chi at this point, just to loop back to how it applies to other things in life, when one comes, Eckhart Tolle talks about this, when one comes to a meeting a business meeting with what he calls presence. And to me, that means that you're neutral, you're relaxed, you're calm, you don't have attachment to an outcome. All of a sudden, creative ideas start to come out. People get excited, but in a, but in a relaxed way. It's not after, you know, three cups of coffee excited. It's, being in the zone and finding these creative ways. And, and that's what I always tried to bring. And I didn't even, I, I did it subconsciously. I tried to bring that type of presence to my business meetings, for example. I mean, they were, they were natural resource oriented, but they were, they were basically business meetings. And, and with that, we found solutions that just seemed impossible before. We would have, for example, we would have a, a rancher that we were working with that was grazing on public land, and they just couldn't figure out a different way to rotate their cattle around that would help 
alleviate the overgrazing on a stream. But when we really went out on the land and got in the zone, because being out in nature helps, right? Mm -hmm. That's one of the principles of this too. When you're in the zone, all of a sudden, you know, these creative ideas started sprouting out and pretty soon we came up with a new prescription and it worked really well. And, and so that was my first aha moment, you know, and then as I compared the typical scientist is trained to go and collect data and then come to a conclusion and then hand that conclusion and data to a decision maker who then the scientist hopes will change the way something works based on the data. But oftentimes, data is not really black and white. And the decision maker often doesn't take that as the only piece of information to make a decision on. There's socio-political reasons to make a decision and things like that. And so what it ends up being is a source of frustration for the scientific community because they see a problem, they identify it, and they study it, and they come to a conclusion on how to fix it. And then all of a sudden, that's their answer. And they're often very disappointed that our culture does not choose the conclusion that they came to. And so what I realized was it's, that's not a great way to influence the way that we use natural resources or the way that we relate to each other or the way that we do business with other people. If we could bring this presence and this consciousness of, of um, collaboration and um, mutual benefit and understanding each other's values, which are all um, outcomes of a practice like Tai Chi or yoga or meditation or some other thing that brings you back into your heart center so that you're open to everyone. And, and it takes us out of our competitive mind and, and winning and things like that. I think that's the way that we're going to move forward. It, yeah, I agree that's completely. The way, yeah, that, I think that's the way that we're going to solve issues where people are, are saying, you know, that works. Okay, I can live with that. Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense, you know. And, and without, if I'll just add this last thing, without mindfulness to the issues without mindfulness to one's life in general, I think that it's very difficult to attain these states of consciousness that we interact with each other. And so to have, I'm sure you and your clients and um, others that, that you've seen practicing yoga, practicing mindfulness, um, have this, uh, kind of personal growth where where they where they say oh you know um my my practice is helping me physically mentally and emotionally and it's resulting in all these things in life that just seem to flow 
They seem to resolve themselves. They yeah. seem to work out easier. Does that 100%. make sense? hundred percent. Oh, I mean, you're preaching to the choir completely. I, my background's in psychology <laughs> and the reason that I'm a yoga teacher is because I saw through just doing a yoga practice, just a simple asana posture practice, how it affected me mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and all the benefit that I was gaining from really a simple, simple practice. So yes. Amazing. And I do a lot of life coaching now, well, not a lot, but some with my clients because they come in and you might experience this too, where they think, oh, I'm just going to start to get physically fit and physically healthy. And they'll begin their practice and then their whole entire life starts to change and shift and they start to wake up and they start to shed and realize things that they had never realized before and start to process. And that's what happens. That's what it's happens. It's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's wonderful. Yes. But it can surprise it can surprise someone because they, yes. they don't they don't know that that's what they're getting in for. Um, but uh, an effective <laughs> practice will certainly start to have these effects like you're describing. And that state of flow too, flow and synchronicity and grace that comes through through just starting really to get into the body. The body is such the body and breath and awareness combined are such like it's like the portal gateway into spirit soul alignment. I totally agree. I totally agree. And and so with those look at how we love to share our discoveries, right? So we We've discovered like, wow, this has been a fantastic practice for my life. And it's really changed me. You know, it's I, I've leaped in magnitudes into more of who I want to be. Mm-hmm. And we want to we want to share that and teach that. And um, and as I discovered how to teach this in the circles of natural resource managers, I found it very difficult because they didn't have a practice. And so there was no foundation to, there was no familiarity for them to relax in a difficult meeting and use all these techniques and, and feel collaborative. They, when people get stressed, they go back into their lower chakra system of competition and survival. Mm-hmm. And so as we do these beha- these exercises and these practices that bring us up our chakra system higher into our heart chakra, for example, all of a sudden, like I was talking about, these creative ideas start to spring out. And so uh, as I, through the years, as I taught Tai Chi, I taught Tai Chi for quite a long time and for quite a few people, and and I saw them come and go, but everybody seemed to just smile at the end of the class, right? So we were getting somewhere. And so now that I am free from the nine-to-five job, my goal is to really um share these concepts with uh many more people than I've had an opportunity to in the past and the, I believe 
that these contributions of bringing people into these spaces will help with natural resource management. They'll help everything that we do as a culture and a people. Because without it, we end up lost. And the Tao Te Ching talks about that, where, you know, the Chinese culture just um, went through its ups and downs, and mostly because people didn't have this balanced approach in life. So as a, as a consultant out there in Montana, is that what you're, is that what you're hanging your shingle on? Like conscious, <laughs> co- consciousness well, consulting? I have not done that yet. And uh, I'm exploring the, the receptivity of that. Because most of how people manage natural resources and the environment is still much a competitive, uh, masculine-dominated concept. It's, yeah, it, top-down. Even the environmental groups, it, the environmental groups are, are just as competitive. You know, it, it's not far off from Washington, D.C. politics, really. And, and uh, people are people are in camps, and they have a difficult time being neutral and seeing lots of different values. They come to a conclusion, like um, you know, we need to eliminate public land grazing, or we need to remove um, a bunch of dams and rivers, and and uh, that that may you know some of that may be really. Uh, applicable and very appropriate, but to me, it's how we go about doing it. Mm-hmm. A- and if you don't mind me adding this, the the practice of of Tai Chi has come out of um, many people are attracted to Tai Chi because of the martial art aspect. That that's how it came to the West, even though it's got these underlying principles. Most people practice Tai Chi with this flavor of winning and competition. In, in fact, there's well, a we want to be the best. Tai Chi. We want to be the best. Yeah. <laughs> 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 there's this practice in Tai Chi. There, unlike yoga, there's a practice in Tai Chi that's called push hands. And it's kind of like glorified sumo wrestling. And so it's two people that come together and they stand in front of each other and they try to push each other out of a circle. The concept is to be very soft and immovable because you're very rooted like a tree. But invariably, as soon as people start touching each other, they end up getting physical and then they push physically. Mm -hmm. And so it deteriorates from the concept of being centered and grounded and yielding and being water and being soft and into this um, tense competitive thing. And so when I got shown that competitive part, I, I, you know, it didn't resonate at all with me. And my teacher really emphasized the Taoist principles of soft and yielding and 
And, you know, as it equates to collaboration and things like Mm -hmm. we were talking about with natural resource management. And so now that resonated, right? So as I practice and teach this, this is, this is really what I love to share is, and, and Asia and I have worked with her clients on uh, some in-person thing, in-person training where I've taken people and partnered them up and had, that had never done it before. And I did not introduce any of the competition concept. It was all of partnering and nurturing each other and feeling each other's energy systems and being very intuitive. And within minutes, people are picking up these concepts and and they have these big smiles on their face because they're understanding energy in themselves and in their partners that go beyond the five senses. There's something there. We haven't been trained to decipher it very well because most of us have been trained to only use our five senses. But then there's this other stuff and, and they start working with it. And it's, it's so enjoyable to watch them just light up and go, whoa, that was amazing. I, I feel it, right? Mm-hmm. And as soon as they get tense and hard and have that mental position, then that energy system shuts down and all of a sudden they can't feel it anymore. And, and they say, well, where'd it go? And I'll work with them a little bit on the breath and the relaxation. And, and all of a sudden, they'll have it animated again. It's very similar to kundalini yoga, where if you're in the zone and you have that flow, you start to feel your the energy move up your shishuna and your, your chakra system. And you start to light up. And, but it doesn't come with tension. It comes no. with softness. All true. All true. All true. I love that. And within um, Tai Chi and Qigong, it's Qi, right? Which equates to the yogic version of prana or life force energy. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. You know, I've got a question for you. uh, It's, please. It's on a slightly different angle. You know, you mentioned working in the 3D um, with folks through your job with the government. But I know that, or I think I know, now that you've um, moved to Montana and you're doing your own consulting and working more with Asia, that the idea might be to work more on like the 5D or the 7D level. That's right. Yes. Can you describe what that is like? 5D level. What does that mean working on the 5D? Yeah. Um, Great question. So I think it comes back to those concepts I was talking about earlier about um, the platform and foundation is the relaxed sense of being the um, not using an overthinking mind and um, letting go of the concept of winning and competition 
and a mental position and starting to have um, dialogue. Sometimes it takes multiple meetings. Sometimes it takes quite a long time, but to, on complex issues, but to come to an interaction with others, with the softness, with the, the moving into the heart center, um, with the meditative mind. And as soon as one leaves that, it's easy to drop down into the 3D competition and uh, um, stress and worry. So an example is... Um, Let's use a mining company that wants to mine gold on public land. So they may have lots of scientific studies that show that they could mine gold on public land and not make a big mess. And they actually want to do as good of a job as they can. And they want to offer part of their profit to do conservation work that's going to be very beneficial somewhere nearby or related. But they come to the initial meeting in a very guarded way. You know, this is typical um, business, American business, maybe it's worldwide from the past is, hey, everybody, I got this figured out. I'm going to tell you what it is and you agree with me and then we'll move forward. But as soon as somebody, that's the 3D way. Mm -hmm. But as soon as somebody, as soon as somebody says, well, wait a minute, you're not doing enough for the other values here. Um, oftentimes a conversation will break down into, well, I'm right. You know, well, no, I'm, you know, I'm noticing that you're not right. And Rather, uh, another way to do it is to step back and say, hey, guys, is it possible to do to mine gold on public land in this area? Because this is we found gold here and we'd, we'd like to run our business. Can we have a collaborative approach that can figure out whether this fits or not with neutrality and um, uh, um, softness? And, and you can can see the difference right away the 3d is looking for the outcome and has already figured it out and put a powerpoint together to demonstrate it with data and blah 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 it's different in a 5d way to not have the outcome figured out mm -hmm. now that doesn't work all that well with current business practices because most people want to start they don't want to go into a meeting with some stuff in their mind and then the conclusion at the end is no this isn't a good idea because the group brought this whole concept to our attention and this isn't going to work even though we want it to and we can make a lot of money off of it mm -hmm. maybe another way to put it is to bring 3d versus 5d into a family situation so I, this is a. I have a question argument. too. Go go ahead. I think yeah, I've had yeah. this thought with the five D 
work, like when I've heard Asia say the work's being done on the 5D, that it's also something that's happening in the unseen, like in a way that it's being orchestrated energetically without the effort of the mind into like the the projecting forward of like, this is the vision of how it's going to look for my mind is more... 3D and then feeling like it's happening on the 5D level is almost like behind the curtain somehow things are getting sorted out and I don't even know how it's happening. Yeah. Um, that's even a little bit more esoteric and I, I like talking in that, um, in that with those concepts and it's a little bit more advanced in in one's understanding and so that play the quick example with that at play is we could have that meeting with the company that wants to mine gold but behind the scenes if it's not aligned with the health of the earth and where humankind is destined to go in the next age, there's, there are forces at work that are going to set the stage for things that are not in alignment with the higher good to mm-hmm. probably not be able to come to fruition. And, and that is... That's re- that's hard for a 3D-minded person to understand. They they might say, "Well, crap, that didn't work out," or "Oh, that I had bad luck," or, but there was something that weighed in that said, "Nope, you know, we're not going to mine gold in this drainage for various reasons," and the business idea just falls away. It it almost falls away organically, and nobody really knows like what happened but it just didn't work right right so that's an example it's kind of like uh yeah it's kind of like i'll use this quick example it's kind of like um the concept of clearing the rainforest for cattle grazing in brazil because it's big profit if you could raise cattle in brazil and then sell the meat in the U.S. I mean, the fast food burger joints are notorious for buying beef from Brazil. And and so now the rainforest is on fire, right? Mm -hmm. And everybody is really disturbed because they see from from an ecological way of what we know now that, oh my gosh, you know, that's a travesty. And yet at the same time, on a, on a 5D higher consciousness level, that could be the very thing that causes the whole practice of clearing rainforest for unsustainable agricultural practices to end. And so if we were in the beef business, we might come to the table to continue grazing in Brazil, but the whole setup of the ecosystem might change so much that it puts the whole beef business completely non-profitable 
and then the whole idea sinks, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. And it's absolutely true that I think that what's happening right now or just happened in the rainforest has brought to so many more people's consciousness uh, the effects of the fast food industry and industrialized meats. Yeah. Yeah, and I think this is happening in, in, and of course, Asia and I talk about this daily, these indicators of a changing world, you know, and anything that really is unsustainable or is um, done in a way that only profits a few and not the bulk of humanity are getting exposed people are becoming aware of it like oh my gosh i didn't know that was happening you know that was the big thing i think in the 90s when it was exposed on the news that mcdonald's was buying rainforest raised beef and you know there was a little bit of a skirmish like oh i'm not going to go to mcdonald's but you know it really didn't I mean, they're still a massive corporation. They sell tons of food. They have high stock prices. They're, you know, but but we are at a time in 2019 now where more and more people are becoming aware of these things and, and changing their decisions based on that information. And so we're we're riding this new kind of 5D tide to where conscious decisions are more uh, uh, appealing to people. And the more that they do these practices like we're talking about, these mindfulness practices, rather than the numbing out practices mm. of watching TV and having three martinis and, um, you know, like, shit, I had a hard day and all that stuff. Um, it You know, as we turn the tide of, of asking more questions and becoming more aware and doing these practices that put us in this nice zone where we feel good and we're more in tune with our body, then we're more, dis we're more heart-centered in our decisions. Like we started talking about even in the family unit, you know, you, you come to these disagreements with... Uh, more of an open heart versus a mental position of, damn it, you know, you didn't do what I wanted you to do and not even understanding why that is. You know, mm -hmm. the typical example is the teenager who doesn't want to do what mom and dad say. And rather than trying to discover in a soft way, well, why is that? You know, let's, let's have a conversation about this. The 3D way is to just say, damn it, you do what I tell you to do. You're grounded. The 5D way, yeah, the 5D way is to really understand like, well, what's motivating you here and, and mm -hmm. what's your position and let's all take a breath and, you know, let's be thankful for what we do have for starters and then we can build from success on how to integrate some of these disagreements on how things are going. Yeah, beautifully said. And I think it's important to reiterate the power of personal choice because I feel like at times when we get these global feelings of what's going on with the earth, we can feel quite powerless and hopeless and uh, that it's, it's 
true. And you can make a big difference just by your daily habits and how you live your own life and the example that you're setting. And changing yourself in that way is effective. I, I totally agree. And, and, and it seems that that message of change yourself and then the planet will change is really hard for the 3D mind to get. You know, the, the you conscious change your, mind change your health, change, change yourself, change yourself, focus on change yourself. Mm -hmm. And then you change, thus the planet changes. And so most people say, well, I'm just one of 7 billion people. That's ridiculous, you know, but what we're talking about is like these practices of Tai Chi and Qigong and yoga and mindfulness and and, and artwork and whatever puts people in that space where they're more connected to their heart center and they're more of that peaceful, easy feeling. It's, it's the, the, the old way is to watch the news and be informed and then hopefully help people make 3D decisions based on that. The 5D way is to be aware at a high level of some of these concepts, but to really spend your time focusing on yourself, your own practice, your own heart-centeredness, your, your own self-development, your own well-being. And then it equates to, um, you know, it's like concentric circles going out. So if, mm -hmm. if the individual really has these principles then it plays into the family and the community and it just goes out from there. So it's a really weird concept to say, well, the best thing you can do for humanity is to work on yourself. Most people, you know, they want to kind of throw up. Like, what? Well, and but, too, they don't um, want to actually I'm, do the work because it is work too. <laughs> people think that there's this misconception that once I become or start to get on my spiritual path, things are going to get easier and they actually get a lot harder for a long time because you have to finally really face and deal with and integrate your own shadow. Brilliant. That's exactly what happens. And you and I know that firsthand because we're doing it. Yeah, but that's the only game in town, really. That's what we're here to do. But yes, and and really. and through the process yeah. of integrating our own shadows, we have all these sadhanas. We have all these tools that we can use, like Tai Chi or Qigong or yoga or meditation or mindfulness, or community as well, which is a really big one of people that are also on the path and trying to straighten out their own shit, and then. In the, in the same line with that, the whole rest of the world. So it's not, it's a big task and there's lots of tools for it. Yes, I totally agree. And I, I watch so many people come to these decision-making meetings angry and I watch nothing positive result from it. And mm -hmm. so like, like you, when I teach Tai Chi and Qigong and when I do my natural resource work, I want to share from a position of that centeredness and that calmness and not have the 
mental position that causes me to have an angry disposition or be a victim or or pissed off in some way because that's that's not doing it and so you know as much as i that's what i really want to do in the future is to bring people to these places where it's more of a uh their standard operating system where they're they're much more relaxed they're much more calm uh, even though their shadow stuff is going to come up and they're going to have some personal growth challenges, they're, they're on the path to the stuff that really works well and functions well in, in really all aspects of life. Yes. Beautiful. Beautiful. I am so grateful to hear you're going to be doing that out there in the world. And, um, how can people find you for consulting the work that you're doing now? And also Tai Chi, are you teaching anything or are you teaching in Montana? What's coming up for you there? Well, um, my consulting work, if people want to, if people are curious about that, they can email me at judetrapany at gmail.com. I'll put that in the link. Lowercase. Great. And uh, if they're curious about Tai Chi and Qigong, I I am teaching. I um, I teach on video conferencing on Zoom, so it can be from anywhere. <clears throat> I also teach in person. So if they're I I don't have a local class going at this time here in Hamilton, Montana. But I do offer, I just had a client come for a two-day in-person workshop, and that was great. And <clears throat> people can find me on Facebook. It, my page is called Tai Chi and Qigong with Jude Trapani. And I have um, my, uh, some of my um, services, class offerings on there. And there's uh, there's a video there that people can watch. That's basic uh, starter qigong exercises. They want to just do that for starters, and they could message me or contact me either through Facebook or email. Okay, Jude Trapani, and that's T R A P A N I. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. And you, are you coming to Boise to teach too? Don't you have a workshop in yes, October? Um, October 5th, there's uh, at the Boise Fairgrounds Expo, there's a gathering for um, <clears throat> baby boomer. They're calling it um, activities for baby boomers, and it includes health and well being. And I'll be doing a type of an intro Tai Chi Qigong session for about 45 minutes at 11 a.m. on Saturday, October 5th. Okay, cool. And maybe around that time too, we'll get you here at Sage. We'll work on that. Yeah. That sounds great. Um, yeah. How I, I'm curious about settling into Montana with Asia and your daughter. What is your daughter's name again? Paola. Paola. Yeah. Paula, yeah. Uh, we um, 
the way we operate now is is much more spontaneous than than we used to. So planning a move um, kind of happened in in one day back in December in Boise because our daughter was having difficulty in junior high. And we did not want to have her go through school in a, a difficult environment if we could help it. So we knew we wanted to move back to a more rural setting. Even though Boise, we were there for seven years. It was a it was a good fit for us for a while, but life changes fast for us now. And so we found a Montessori type school that goes all the way to senior and high school here in Hamilton, Montana. So within one week, we were driving up here to visit the school, and we knew right away it was a great fit. Um, It's such a great school system. They do yoga and meditation as the first thing in the morning, and um, it builds from there with personal growth and practical um, experience along with academics. She loves it. Asia's business is is almost exclusively online, so we can work from anywhere. And I'm putting my I can work from anywhere from most of the time. Some of my natural resource work I have to go visit the location, but uh, it so freed us up from having a an office and a you know, tied to a certain location. So um, it's fantastic. We love it. We, we've lived in a, a, a couple different places as we transition to a more permanent housing situation, but everyone has been beautiful. We're so uh, natural environment oriented and the Bitterroot Valley is absolutely spectacular. And I lived in Salmon, Idaho for 20 years, so it's just right over the hill. And um, outdoor activity and, and the natural environment is is just a perfect fit here for us. Yeah, that's great. That's so wonderful to hear. It it fills my heart. I spent five years in outside of Dillon in the Ruby Valley in the 2000s. Beautiful. And uh, I just know how grounding and studying and gorgeous and expansive it is up there. I'm happy that you, that you all have landed there. Thanks. Yeah. Well, thank you, Love Jude, it. for this conversation. I've really, really enjoyed it. And um, like I said in the, in the beginning, before we started recording, I feel like we could just keep talking for a couple more hours at least. But this yes. is a good starting point. Well, great. I very much enjoyed it and look forward to visiting with you uh, another time. We can continue our conversation. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, good luck with everything. And I hope to see you in Boise in October. Excellent. Thank you so much. Yeah, you got it. Bye, Jude. Tell AJ I said hi too. Okay. Bye. I will. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.